It's my favorite episode of the year, Jen. Me too. It gives me a lot of joy. Well, New Year's Eve gives me a lot of joy too, (laughs) but in a different way. It's best of 2022, everyone. So exciting. Um, Jen, I just realized we did not introduce ourselves in the last episode. Come on. Is that possible? I guess so. (laughs) Anyway. Welcome to Fade of Mates, everyone. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. And I'm Jennifer Prokop, a romance reader and editor. And we love romance novels. I guess I feel like we should, should we like start off with a little disclaimer about like what best of means to us? Yeah, I think we should. I think we should talk about how we talked about this, like this, this group of books this year. Yeah. Um, Although when I finally, I was like just getting my thoughts organized and I was like, oh, these are all basically, they all fall under one big umbrella. They are all similar, which is fascinating to me. So I, we come up with 10 books, right? Usually it's kind of like five and five, although I think we discuss and agree if there's like books we both read. We trade off. Yeah, I had a hard time coming up with this list this year because I had a hard time reading this year. Yeah. You know, I can think of lots of terrific books I started like people love them, right? Mm-hmm. And I started and like, you know, you fall asleep and then you have to go back to it and I never went back to them and that is not the fault of those books. No. Right? That is the fault of me and where I am right now. Yeah. This whole year it delivered a really particular kind of book on the regular and we've talked about this on the podcast. Uh, so I'm not going to dig too deep into it, but it delivered a kind of really soft, gentle book a lot. And you and I have also talked a lot about how part of the reason why we are such faded mates is that we prefer a book in this particular time period. I want to read books that have real edge in them. I had an epiphany last night about this very topic. Wait, before you talk about your epiphany, I just want to qualify again that is not me saying soft books are bad. It's no. just me saying like soft books just really haven't been for me this year. There are maybe two or three that I've read that have really landed right, but they have to be a very particular kind of softness at a very particular time, like time of the year, I guess. So when we talk about like best of, like our best of is very personal. Like we're not claiming these are like empirically the best, right? Well, I think we're claiming that these are empirically good. Yeah, well, we are definitely claiming that, that. but I think we're saying, like, these were the best books to us, right? Whatever that means, and I think I'll talk a little bit more about what that means to me, but here is my big epiphany, Sarah, because there's a lot of historicals on our list. More than ever before. Right, and I think there's a reason for that, and so this is, like, I I wrote this down on my phone in the middle of the night because I didn't want to forget it. When it comes to writing about where we are now, I think the field that contemporary is plowing, right? That sounds dirty and I don't mean it to. The field that contemporary is really like mining maybe, especially books written by white authors, seems to be primarily about dealing with grief and our feelings of hopelessness, mm-hmm. where it is historical that is dealing with our rage and our will to fight. Listen to you in the middle of the night. Yeah. And I was like, I better write that down because I'll forget and be really mad. And we've talked about this, right? But it's kind of like we are going through some things as a culture and it's like we're dealing with a lot, but it's interesting to me the way this is like shaking out. And it, this is not an epiphany. We've talked about this before, like, right, historical can can do things that contemporary authors maybe feel like they can't do. But it when I thought about them together, right, like we're dealing with our grief in one place and we're dealing with our rage in another. 
I think that's true. I'm in the rage bucket. <laughs> so I am too. And I am like, I am when I'm writing. I am when I'm, I mean, yeah, I, obviously that's how we're feeling. And it's in part, I think, because we wear, you and I particularly, like in the world, as we walk through the world, we wear like our hearts on our sleeve in a in a certain sense. Um, I think that grief looks different in the hands of like white, cishet white people than it does in the hands of other kinds of people. And I think that, I don't think that there is no, like, I I think that there is space for us to reconcile grief and rage together. Yeah. And a number of these books are doing that, I think, and we'll talk about that as we go. Um, But also I was looking for books that gave me a lot of joy. Mm I was looking for books where I was seeing heroines in particular, like really doing the fucking thing. For me, it was, when I look at these books, I don't think there's as clear of a, like it's some of that for sure. Mm -hmm. I I think I will be honest, some of it were, a lot of it were books that surprised me, right? So it was like the novelty of it. These aren't the types of books I maybe usually read or I wouldn't be necessarily drawn to this plot, but it surprised me and I kept going. Like that Mm -hmm. was sort of the, the, you know, the springboard I needed. And then other books were just like page turners, right? Mm -hmm. Like books where I just was like, I have to know what's going to happen. That's what I needed this year when it came to romance. When I think about the books that you know, for me, I'm I'm often, we've talked about this a lot, I'm a sit down and read it in a single sitting. Mm-hmm. And I had a hard time doing that this year. And so the books where I did do that automatically kind of rose to the top as having some sort of different factor that I could yeah. really cling to. I mean, everybody knows this, everybody listens to the podcast knows this, but I've had a really tough time reading over the last kind of two years. Um, and so it really has... Um, honed what I've discovered about what books I can read right now are is that same thing. If I can't read it in one sitting, and I'm not saying it has to be short, I'm saying if I don't want to read it in one sitting, right? If I can wander off and do something else, um, yeah. like you said, I'm probably not going to come back. And right. That I hope I'll sucks. come back later. That sucks. Right? Yeah. I mean, I have a stack full of books that I know are empirically good. Right. And I just can't. I just can't do it. So um, what I can say is that I definitely could do it with all of these. Same. So that was the the bar that had to be cleared this year. As always, I want to say it up front so that we don't forget it. As always, as with every year with the best of the year list, you can find the list, the full list, including um, shopping links for the whole list in show notes. But our friends at Old Town Books in Alexandria, Virginia, as usual, as always, have put together a book box of these books. Also, Jen, I decided that we're not doing spoilers today. Like we're going to see up the books and then you can enjoy them. Because I also think we've selected, um, at least I really tried to select books that aren't, that we have either, we haven't talked about at all or that like a lot of people haven't read. Right. There's one on my list that I think everybody on the podcast will not be surprised to see, but other than that. So anyway, Old Town Books carries them. They carry anything that's in print. So if there are indie books here, if they are in print and available, Old Town will have them. If not, 
you'll have to get them through KU or, you know, wherever, wherever. they are. Right. Um, but you can get the box along with a Magnificent Firebird sticker that you can usually only get if you meet us in person. Um, and a letter from me and Jen. Uh, and support a local independent bookstore during the holidays. If you pre-order it now, today, you will get it in time for the holidays. Uh, Hanukkah this year is late, so that makes it a lot easier. Um, So we urge you to, if you're thinking about this or you want to put this on your Christmas list or your Hanukkah list and you want somebody to give it to you as a gift, we urge you to send a link to them right now before we even start Yeah. um, so that they can get that locked in and you get your box in advance of holidays. And their page will have all of the details about like what's in the box and when they expect it to ship and like sort of all that. So what's in the box? Exciting. All right. So Sarah, you want to start? You want me to start? I'm going to, I think we should start with the, fir- I'm going to start with my first one, which okay. is the one that nobody will be surprised that is on the list. There we'll go. get it out of the way and everybody will be like, obviously they put a Caribbean heiress in Paris on the list. Obviously we did. So Jen and I both agree that Adriana Herrera's A Caribbean heiress in Paris is empirically one of the best historicals of the year, possibly the best historical of the year. It's fucking fantastic and not just because we love Adriana. Right. Everybody knows that we try every year not to put our friends on the list. Um but every year there's usually like one where we're like this podcast <laughs> okay. is free and here is our disclaimer. Um this book is sometimes your friend writes a book that's just the tits, you guys. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and y- Perfect. You don't have a choice. Um so here's the thing. I just wrote this big thing about Adriana actually on my Tumblr. My new Tumblr, sarahmcglain.tumblr.com. Your new, everything old is new again, Sarah. <laughs> exactly. And I said, and, you know, originally what I was going to say or what I sort of started with was like, I really think Adriana is in her imperial period, as you like to say. Um, listen, On the Hustle is also fucking great. Mm-hmm. Um, but We really our, went back and forth about which one to put on the list. But On but. the Hustle, we're going to do a deep dive on. So there we go. Well, I'll work out. And I think that what Adriana is really doing, I was thinking about this, I think she has, like, really figured out what she is trying to do with romance right now. Yes. And I think it is evocative, and I think it is um, feminist, and I think it is structurally fascinating, and I think she can write a fucking sentence, and I also think she is unashamed of, like, what gives her joy in yes. books, right? Luz Alana, the heroine of A Caribbean Heiress in Paris, is a strong-minded, brilliant, beautiful, passionate um, heroine who has, who is, uh, her own passion and commitment to her future involves, like, a run, essentially um, running her family, her family's, like, run rum empire, um, but also making it better. It's this thing that has existed for however long it's existed, but she has ideas about how to make it better. And the best way, the only way that she can do this is to marry. And she finds a hero, um, Evan, who is has a whiskey distillery that he is deeply passionate about it as well. 
And they have a marriage of convenience that is designed initially to just last for a year until all the inheritances come through and everybody sorts everything out. And, you know, he wants to take revenge on his dad and she has like a whole plan for her future. And they are, they figure out a way they are working together and they are on a path together that is simultaneous, but not intertwined. Mm. And what Adriana does over the course of this book is show you that as a heroine, that what heroines should want and what heroines should deserve in the world is heroes who are both gone for her and willing to do basically anything to ensure that they thrive. Yes. And that's what I want. That's like, what I want, right? That's why I come to romance. I come to romance for heroes who want heroines to thrive, right? Yeah. I come to romance who, for partners who want their partners to thrive. But, like, it is real joy when he has... Thighs the size of tree trunks. (laughs) Yes. And a commitment to, like, his own path, but immediately realizes that her path is, in many ways, the most valuable thing that he can achieve. And it is so sexy. There is a scene on the top of the Eiffel Tower that I will think about on my deathbed. Forever. (laughs) It's really sexy. And um, the next one comes out in... Uh, May, and it's about one of Luz's friends, and I'm just so delighted by this series, which is set in an unusual setting in the 1890s in Paris. Um, I'm so delighted by how Adriana is just pushing open the borders of historical romance in a powerful, important way. And I am very proud to say that she had our, she is our friend and a friend of the yeah. pod. And um, she wrote a great fucking book. So it's easy to talk about it. It's like one of those books that kind of like lives rent free in my head. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean like one of the, I mean, I, I I'm maybe I've said this already on a previous podcast that I, at some point this year was like, I don't think I can do a best of 22. I don't, 2022, I don't know what I'll say. What we need to do is go back and do like the best of 2017 mm. because sometimes it takes time, right? But like, this is a book I think about a lot. No, this is right? a modern classic. This is yes. going to be 20 years from now when people are like, oh, I love old school romance. It's going to be this one on the list. Yeah. Sorry, Adriana, you're doomed to be an old school at some point. You know what? I think she'll <laughs> see that as a compliment. Um, let me talk about, I have one historical on my list, and let me talk about it next, just because it's like a nice transition, I guess, which is, it is, okay, it's Sahelian and the Hero by Emily Sullivan, and I kept saying the hero and the hellion, which is not right. Um, let's put her first, everybody. The hellion and the hero, and you know what this was? So this is a historical that really pushed all of my buttons. So uh, Lady Georgiana is our heroine, and she, I kind of, listen, I know this is terrible, but I love this, right? Like, we get all these beautiful young women out onto the marriage mart, and there's always this threat, right, that she will have to be married off to some, like, really douchey older guy who, you know what I mean, who's like 50, and it's his second wife, and he's scummy. And this is actually what happens to her, but the season that she was out, she had this... I'll call it a flirtation. I don't, 
maybe a, a romance, right, with um, Henry Harris, who then, um, you know, sh- he thinks they have a chance, but she really, because of course no one ever marries the scummy old man because they don't want to, right? She feels like she has no choice but to do it to help her family. So here it is, however many years later. I want to so say. So she does it. She marries she, she gets married, old man. And it breaks Henry's heart. He goes off to the war, right? He's a soldier. He comes back now, and he's essentially like a private investigator and a war hero. Everybody in London knows his name because he was did something heroic, everybody thinks, but we know right from the beginning when he thinks about it that it's not quite true. Whatever it was that he's been lauded for, they, people don't quite know the whole story. When Georgiana's brother comes and says, um, she's in trouble and I want to hire you as a bodyguard. And the trouble, and this is, again, where I loved it, right? Her husband has died. And she has inherited his, you know, this is, it's like the, I don't know if it's called the Gilded Age when it's in London, but it's like the late 1890s, right? And so it's the Industrial Revolution. Victorian era. Victorian era. But anyway, she inherits like a factory. And rather than selling it, which is what everyone expects her to do, she decides to run it. And then she realizes how shitty it is for the women who work there. And so then she, like, gets rid of all, like, the scumbags who are, like, bossing these women around or threatening them. She's, like, paying them fair wages. And all of a sudden, she's this huge threat to all the other factory owners. I love it. I love it. I love this. Right? Be ungovernable. Yes, exactly. Right? And that's when I was really thinking about, like, this is a historical, right? Like, you know, for whatever reason, you have contemporary authors afraid to put characters on page who really live out their beliefs. Mm -hmm. Right? And Georgiana is like, no, I'm not going to run some sweatshop for these women. Like, I'm going to pay them a fair wage. And she even, like, sells their Mayfair mansion and lives in a smaller home. And you know what I mean? Like, kind of lives up to that promise. So Henry is going to be her bodyguard, Mm. Um, right? Of course, this puts them back in each other's orbit. He, of course, is determined to hate her for kind of choosing this rich man, but then how something is amiss because the person who chose that rich man to marry, how can this be the same person determined to give these women and her Mm. employees a better life? So that cognitive dissonance for him is really what drives a lot of, you know, the him right really grappling with I thought of her one way and and now it's something else there's like road trip romance elements to it right they have to get out of town for a while it's terrific and I think Emily Sullivan's going to be one of those romance historical romance writers to really watch awesome yeah it's great This week's episode of Fated Mates is sponsored by Charlotte O'Shea, author of Forever in a Moment. This is, without a doubt, one of my most favorite setups for a romance novel. Samantha DiMartino's Christmas wedding is two weeks away when her fiancé calls the whole thing off. What a jerk. I know. Rumor has it he's got someone warming warming him up on the side, maybe. And Sam is just like a mess. And her friends know that, like, she can't just go back to work. So they convince her to go on her honeymoon alone. Oh. Listen, I love a honeymoon alone. Right? Story. Of course. Mm-hmm. Here you are at your lowest, but the what best. are you going to do? You're going to go on a trip. 
meet somebody as big as a house. Where's she going? It's Vermont, where Jed Armstrong is a running his family's dairy farm and teaching tourists to ski, and maybe teaching <gasps> Sam, maybe teaching <laughs> Sam to love again. So a blizzard oh. is going to come along and help this whole couple figure things out. And I just love, right? Like you know, city girl goes to reclusive farmer. What is? Oh, I love it. Is there anything more perfect? So this is perfect for anybody who loves a jilted bride, fish out of water, opposites attract, or holiday romance. And Forever in a Moment is on sale right now for only 99 cents in E through December 31st, so you can snatch it up. You can also get it in print or in audio, and as a special treat for Faded Mates listeners, stay tuned after this episode to listen to a little snippet from the Forever in a Moment audiobook. Thanks to Charlotte O'Shea for sponsoring the episode. My next book was going to be historical when you started because I had one that I could jump from, but then you told that story about the factories, and now I'm like, Mm, oh no, I'm going to talk about uh, a contemporary on my list. Which, So I want to talk about Heather Goyer's Preferential Treatment which is, um, those of you who listen to the podcast regularly probably uh, remember that Jen talked about, you talked about another one of her books. Uh, On the Halloween Val- one, yeah. it was like sort of a demon lover, I think it was called. Right. Um, so Jen was super into like just glomming the whole backlist of this author as we are wont to as romance readers. Um, and she texted me one where she was like, this is not for Jen, but it is for Sarah. And I immediately downloaded it and read it. And in fact, it was so for Sarah that it is now on this list. I'll take a picture of like the text where I like highlighted the thing where I was like, I was all into it until (laughs) we'll we'll see. I mean, it'll be clear. (laughs) It'll become clear. Um, Okay. Our heroine, Kate Pasternak works for a like big company. Doesn't matter. (laughs) It's just a billion, a billion dollar business, a billion dollar. There's like a shipping angle. There's, it's, it seems to be sort of a shipping company, but also a tech company. I don't know, but point doesn't matter. A romance, romance enterprises is what Kate works for. Right. But it makes billions of dollars and she's extremely good at her job. And at the very beginning of this book, in the first chapter, we see Kate sort of rough and tumble on the phone trying to like fix a problem. Something has gone wrong in shipping and she is on the phone trying to sort out like how to get a, I don't know, a shipping container full of goods through the port in time for, you know, romance emergency. (laughs) She is extremely capable. We see that she is extremely capable and somebody else in her office also sees that she is extremely capable because they start to touch her papers while she is working. Like she's on the phone trying to like sort things out and a hand comes in to like touch the paperwork and she immediately like kind of grabs the wrist of this hand and says like, what the fuck? Get away from me. Like this is my stuff. I'm busy. And she looks up and oh no, it's the handsome, brilliant billionaire owner. Of course. Of this publicly traded romance enterprise billionaire business. And she's like, oh, fuck. So Mikhail, this owner, this Russian owner, um, sort of is looking at her and she, and he, you know, they have a a little bit of a word. They have a little bit of words and then he goes back to his office um, and she is summoned immediately, almost immediately 
to sure. please attend him in his office. And she's like, well, it was nice knowing my coworkers. I'm she's on the romance fired. clock. <laughs> yeah. So she's like, I'm definitely getting fired. She goes into his office and he propose. he immediately is like, you're not getting fired. In fact, I have a proposition for you. Um, I'll pay you. <laughs> five, Please check your notes. <laughs> $5,000 a week. To basically dumb me. Actually, he says, he's, initially he's like, <laughs> I want you to just, like, be my companion. I'll pay you $5,000 a week. And her response is, you're into some weird stuff, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> How much did she get paid in Pretty Woman per week? Is that inflationary? I feel like it should be more. I'm just going to go $3, ahead $3,000 a week in, in Pretty Woman. Yeah. I mean, But he would have paid five. Remember? I mean, but that's my whole point. Listen, I just think this billionaire can do fucking better. Exactly. Already I'm mad at him. Exactly. So he's like, I'll pay $5,000 a week. And then there's like kind of a back and forth. And at some point I think he does say like you're undervaluing yourself. But the point is that um, Kate needs the money. She's in debt. She has student debt. She has all these other debts. Like she isn't stupid. And so she's like, all right, like just to tell you what the fuck to do, fine. Like. I'm not dumb. I'm taking the money, right? But I still want my job. Like, I'm keeping my job, and I'm taking your money. And he's like, great. And this is all, this all starts off like any normal erotic romance, right? Like, here we are. Sarah's delighted. It's all going to go great. But probably wouldn't have ended up on the list, except please <laughs> recall that Mikhail is a billionaire. And how do we feel about billionaires these days, Jen? Not great. Thumbs not great, down. Sarah. Like thumbs them. down to billionaires. And let me tell you something, Kate doesn't like them either. (laughs) And so what she ends up doing is like topping this billionaire by making him spend his money on like charitable donations. Like, I want you to give $65,000 to this like small domestic, you know, shelter for victims of domestic violence. And he says, that's a lot of money. And she says, well, you don't get to come until you make that donation. And it's the greatest thing ever. And then it turns out like he's actually he actually makes like a hundred and fifty thousand dollar donation because he wants to please her. It is the greatest experience. And then uh, over the course of it, and this is like on the page, you guys. And I know, I know that it sounds like oh, it wouldn't be that interesting to watch two people like discuss how billionaires shouldn't exist in the world. They just shouldn't fucking exist <laughs> I know. in the pages of a romance novel. But let me tell you something. It is an absolute delight to see this woman just shred his whole <laughs> existence and have him at the end be like, you know what? You're totally right. I shouldn't, like, billionaires shouldn't exist. So over the course of this book, she tops him for money. <laughs> For for other people. Like, at one point, she's like, I want you to donate $250,000 to this super pack to get Democrats elected. And I'm like, amazing. sex is great, but have you tried this? Yes, right. That's <laughs> really where I'm at. And there is a grand gesture. I know I said we weren't going to spoil, and I won't spoil it. But the grand gesture here is, like, the greatest moment of anti-capitalist like <laughs> sexiness I have ever read. I mean, of course, of course. Of course. It has to be. Like it has listen, to be. Listen, to every single literary fiction author out there who's like, my book is a takedown takedown of capitalism. Read I'm like, this one. is it preferential treatment though? 
<laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. The okay, sex I, is great. The yeah. writing is great. Heather, if you want to come on Fade and Mates, please let us know. Yeah. Oh yes. Okay. So here is mine. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you the one that gave me that same energy as I was reading it, okay. which is. Um, Beautiful Russian Monster by Odette Stone. Odette Stone. <laughs> no, look. a month of my life yes. this month. Right. This now, year, Sarah loved this book where the, this is like the previous series. I guess there's like a one starts with a plane crash. And it was funny because as great as it sounded, I like could not bring myself to read it. I just don't. There was too much danger. But Kate was the one who told me to read this one. Kate Claiborne. Kate Claiborne, right? And this is the second book in a series. I did not read the first one. I just read this one, and it was perfect and pure. And basically, I was, like, looking back through my texts with Kate when I was reading this. It's really like reading an action, like a Jason Bourne movie or, like, a Jack Reacher book. And by that, I mean... They do a lot of things. <laughs> they go all over the world. Like, this is one of those things where it's like, we need this one thing. Uh, her grandfather has been kidnapped. Her name's Blair. Her grandfather has been kidnapped. He's Victor. I don't even honestly, romance reasons. He's like, you need to come with me because we need to go retrieve. Your grandfather has said that, like, in order for us to, you know, the the people who want him have said they need something. And you are the only person in the world who knows how to get it and who knows what it will be and who will recognize it for what it is. And we have to go globe hopping all over the world, container ships, typhoons, all sorts of crazy shit in order for us to retrieve this thing, okay? Which is a total MacGuffin. Like, I don't even remember what it is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's just, like, a forced proximity. The Pulp Fiction briefcase doesn't matter. Yes, exactly. Here is, like, literally my favorite. I, I don't want to spoil it, but it's, like, the, the greatest scene in all of romance mm-hmm. that I've read this year. So, like, fast forward, like, 30 seconds if you don't want to hear me. I mentioned this typhoon. So they're in the Philippines. A typhoon is coming. They go to this guy who's going to help them get fake IDs so they can get back out, whatever. So then they go, they like literally walk across whatever town they're in to some hotel. And he's like, okay, that typhoon's coming. So they lock themselves in the bathroom. They like drag in, they put a mattress over like the big windows in the room. They and they sleep in the bathtub. And they're so tired, Sarah, that they just sleep through the typhoon, oh. basically destroying the entire motherfucking yes. hotel room. That's the windows science. are blown out. <laughs> I mean, literally, and he was like, good sleep. Listen, romance science is also the best. Oh, and it's just, you know what it is? It's like, I I think it was like the page-turning aspect mm-hmm. for me, just it totally being completely over the top, right? You know, he's torturing himself because he thinks he's not good enough for her, and he basically isn't. And the whole thing is just as completely and over the top. right. And he's right. He <laughs> It is as completely over the top as, like, that one Fast and the Furious movie where they, like, stunt drive a car from one building into the other. Yep. That is the energy of this book. It I love gives it. no fucks. No. And you know what I said to Kate in one of my texts? I said, this is an author who understands romance. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> this is an author who understands yes. romance. Listen, that punch pulling, right? Yeah. What we no. call taking the finger. Right? Yeah. Odette Stone does it very yeah. well. It is you, amazing. Yeah. I you know who it. else does that very well? Tell me. Angelina M. Lopez. There you go. 
So one of my very favorite books of the year is After Hours on Milagro Street, the most recent book from Angelina M. Lopez, um, who we've talked about before because I actually think she is the reigning queen of the badass slash possibly unlikable heroine. Um, You know, I don't particularly care for the phrase unlikable heroine, but it's in the world, so let's just use it. Angelina is very good at delivering us heroines who are, um, who are really tough. They are tough to crack. They have a lot of walls. They make choices that we wouldn't necessarily make when we meet them. Often we don't care for them, and it's because they are hardened by the world that has raised them. And I don't just mean, like, their family is bad to them. I mean the fucking world is bad to them. Like, it is hard to be these women in Angelina's books, and... They have, like, figured out how to just toughen up to the point where they think they are not feeling pain, right? And also, they lash out. The main character of this book, Alejandra Torres, who goes by Alex, is is a um, celebrity bartender. She oh, works she works in Chicago. She has been named by Esquire magazine the the best bitch in bartending. And she I takes that to heart. She owns that label. She has sisters, though, and she grew up in Kansas, in a an area of Kansas that Angelina also grew up in, according to the author's note. Um, and her grandmother has owned a bar in this um in this part of Kansas uh, for, you know, two generations. And the bar is in peril. And so uh, Alex and her sisters return to this, like, tiny town in Kansas where they are going to, like, save this bar. But when she gets there, she realizes that her grandmother and her entire huge Mexican-American family has um, befriended or been befriended by Jeremiah Post, a professor and historian who believes that, who wants to essentially take the bar, buy the bar, make it a historical landmark, and build a museum on the site to honor the cultural history of this particular place, which is this incredibly rich cultural... There's so much in this book that's fascinating. Um, the this Kansas is one of those places that you don't... Most people think of, like, small-town, middle America, right. as being very white. Mm-hmm. Um, and Angelina tells a great story in her author's note, but also through the whole book, about the Mexican people who lived in many of these towns to build the ra- the railroad. And so they there were, you know, huge communities of Mexican-Americans in a lot of these small towns in the Midwest. Um, and their history is often unsung and lost. And so there is this kind of really remarkable kind of underlying, though overt, sort of lesson in here about history, which is fascinating, right? But then layered on top of it 
is this kind of very presency, like Harlequin presents style. <laughs> oh yeah, wild story, which is you know there are ghosts, there is a treasure, there is a like deed to the building that's like not the real deed to the building. There's a like snidely whiplashy villain. There's you know this possibility <laughs> that like the the there the um, haunted bar is actually you know a, has holds this kind of big mystery, the solution to a huge sort of historical mystery. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on in this book that is fascinating. The pages turn like crazy. Um, Alex has this wonderful family that has, there is like a real push. It feels very authentically just a big family that um, kind of resents her leaving, um, struggles with like how to bring her back into the fold. She has to learn kind of how to be a decent person now. Yeah, um, her father was an alcoholic and kind of pushed her. She fleed mm-hmm. that that world and now she has to come back to it. And then on top of all that, <laughs> it is bananas hot. There it's is amazing. She and Jeremiah are sleeping in the rooms above the bar. And oh, the walls yes. are so thin that they're and their beds are pushed up against the, the each of the walls. So like when they are lying in their gen, when they are lying in their beds <laughs> in their separate rooms, if one of them talks, the other one can hear can it. Hear it. And so they decide, like they have massive sexual chemistry. They bang. Of course. Right away. But then Bless. they decide, like, oh, no, like, us having this kind of relationship is, like, not actually good for us to, like, find the ghost, solve the deed, win the treasure, <laughs> like, whatever the fucking thing right. is, right? At one point, the heroine is like, I feel a lot like we're in, like, an Indiana Jones movie, right? Because <laughs> it does feel that way. It's delightful. And so they can't do it, but they sure can talk about doing it Ooh, if they are sexy. lying in their own beds with a wall <laughs> between them that scene the scene is like incendiary it's so good you guys this is bar none one of the best contemporaries of the year and i'm so excited Amazing. for you all to read it i love it okay let me hop from there to the hookup plan by Farah roshan which also has a little bit of um workplace enmity i'd say but with an you know, but with an added bonus of kind of enemies to lovers, second chance. So in this book, London Kelly is our heroine, and she is um, in her hometown of Austin. It actually opens up with her at like I think it's like her high school reunion. It's not twenty; it's got to be ten years. And you know, she's just one of those people. She was like basically like, look, I hated everything about high school, but we might as well make this a nice time, and these ding dogs aren't going to do it. So let me step in and take care of it, right? So she's just like really one of those people who like takes care of business, right? She's a pediatric surgeon. Um, she even though she can kind of go really anywhere in the country, her, her ties to home, to her family, to her friends, um, are, are such that she's just like, I'm going to stay in this hospital. It's not the best hospital. It's not one of these high powered fancy ones, but it's hers. Well, at the, at the high school reunion, she runs into her high school arch nemesis, Drew. And these two, she thinks of him as being essentially, like, her primary um, rival in high school, right? Like, she wanted to be valedictorian, but he was right there nipping at her heels the entire time, right? 
And so there was all this animosity she felt towards him, but, like, that animosity 10 years later has turned into chemistry, and they do it. Like, right? They, like, have a... She's like, I'm just going to have this one-night stand with them. Sure. Get it out of my just system at the high school reunion. <laughs> We're right here in this hotel. We might as well go upstairs and do it. Perfect. Right? And it's really interesting because I think Farrah makes a pretty interesting choice here, which is she doesn't really put that on page right away, right? Takes a little while before we see what's going on with them. And then on Monday morning when um, she, I think they spend the whole weekend together, like the chemistry is so great. Monday morning, she's like, I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. She walks into work and who does she find but Drew, who is there to audit her hospital, right? And so she sees him immediately as being the enemy, right? She cares about her patients and people who are auditing hospitals care about the bottom line. And there's no way that these two are not going to essentially like butt heads professionally, even as they bang it out personally, pretty much the entire time. It's got that, like, we have to keep it quiet, right? But the whole, the whole vibe of this book is very much like similar to what you were talking about with Angelina's book is, Here's this woman who thought she knew what she wanted and thought she had it all. And being with Drew forces her to kind of face some truths about herself, but also, like, about the hospital, about how it runs. Like, in one part in particular that, like, really stood out to me is, and it's so small, but, you know, Drew wants to, like, sort of make more telehealth appointments, and she's kind of outraged by it. But then, like, they do feedback, and patients are like, I love telehealth. I I can go from my job. I don't need to, like, spend, take a half a day to get to the doctor's office and wait. And, you know, she has to admit, like, patients are changing. And the hospital has to change, too, if we're going to stay successful. Um, so I think that it's just a really, like, I think it's a great contemporary romance, right? And I feel like when I say that, like, this isn't a book that's trying to be a rom-com. This is a book that's really, like, I know the job. You are going to read this, and you are going to just really, like, it's a great story. It's so meaty. There's so much going on, both personally and professionally, for both of them. And I just found it to be a really great book and really, like, digging into... It felt very modern, right? Yeah. It felt very modern. This week's episode of Faded Mates is sponsored by Nancy Northcott, author of Mage Sentinel. So this is really fascinating. Mage Sentinel is the first in a four-book paranormal series called The Light Mage Wars, and it revolves around an investigative reporter, Rick, who is a mage and who gets an unexpected chance as a reporter to clear his father's name by reporting a story that is rocking the kind of mage world, a known hero killed a member of the mage's governing council and is now in the wind. And the only link that anybody has to this guy is his sister, Caroline, who is also a mage, but blind. And so she uses her magic as a way of seeing and as a way of imbuing, she imbues her magic into art. Yeah. Which I just think is really cool because so often you read about magic as weapons in romance and here it's like magic used to make art I think is so cool. Yeah, except there are bad dudes in this world, obviously. Some shit is going down. And um, Caroline is in danger. So she seeks out a responsible 
journalist who she thinks she can trust, not knowing that she actually can't trust Rick at all because he is using her to get to her brother. So as the two of them fall more and more and more in love and get closer and closer and closer, he becomes more and more and more unsettled by the fact that he's going to have to betray her in order to save his father. These are the best kinds of dilemmas. I love that. I love it. I love, like, I can win your trust or I can, you know, win what I started out wanting to get. It's going to be great. Give up the dream or betray the woman I love. Uh, You can read Mage Sentinel in Kindle or also in paperback. Um, Thank you to Nancy Northcott for sponsoring this week's episode. So I think that that's the thing that's happening right now. The the books that I'm finding the best, the ones that I enjoy the most, are the ones that kind of feel like romance novels, mm-hmm. but yes. are in a modern way, right? And one of my other picks this year, uh, Duke Most Wicked by Lenora Bell, really nails that. So this is a historical And I think one of the things that I love the most about Lenora's writing, all of her books, have a real sensibility that they feel like you could have picked them up in sort of the early 2000s and, like, really been delighted by them then. She has – listen, every person who talks about Bridgerton read-alikes and does not put – Lenora on the list doesn't know what they're talking about. Like, this is <laughs> a – she reads so much like Julia Quinn um, of that sort of early Bridgerton Julia Quinn. Yeah. Um, and there's a real sparkling, like, lightness to these books that is tempered with a real honoring of, like, the dark – past of a hero, Mm, right? I love that. So this book begins, I actually have two Brandons on my list, which I think is a weird name to have on your list twice, but I just do. The book begins, uh, the prologue, we meet Brandon, the hero, the Duke, um, who's actually, he becomes the Duke of, his name is West later, but he's Brandon to begin with, and or Brendan. And uh, we meet him, and he is a boy, and his father hates him, like is cruel and terrible to him. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know why. We don't know what the deal is about this. But, like, then there is a new child born who is a boy, and the father, like, essentially, like, treats him absolutely horribly, beats him, and then sends him to school and he never sees his father again. Um, And that happens. And then it's like jump forward and he commits to, I'm going to spend the rest of my life being the worst Duke's heir ever. And so he like commits to like hopping his father's estate, like spending, like running ragged, ruining his reputation. Like basically he like spends his entire life, the next 15 years of his life, just wrecking himself in the hopes that he will also wreck his father, which he does. The unfortunate thing is that he has five sisters. Oh. Who, when the dad dies, become his problem. <laughs> and he loves his sisters. He dotes on his sisters. And, like, we meet him in chapter one, like, with the, these, like, pro, this problem group, right? He's got all these sisters. He's got to marry them off. And there is no money because he has spent it all. Sure. Ooh. Being an asshole. 
right? So it's kind of great. Hoisted on his own petard, right? So uh, his sisters have a music teacher, um, Miss Viola Beaton. I mean, the cutest mm. old, the cutest romance name ever. Um, and she, the I just want to read this. When she is first introduced to the reader, it is with, if Miss Viola Beaton were a character in a novel, she's the heroine's best friend. Oh. Oh, but she's going to be the heroine of this one. And Viola has been teaching these girls music for long enough that she has the biggest unrequited crush on West that you could possibly imagine. And <laughs> you know I love it, unrequited boys, love. Of course. And she is just like consumed. She stammers anytime she's around him. She's awkward and weird. And like these two are perfect together. I mean, like, watching them fall in love is magnificent. And at the same time, horrifying. Because the whole time you're like, she has no money. She has no money. He has five sisters. How is it going to work? Is this ever going to work out? And it works out beautifully because Lenora is very smart and had a whole plan all along. And it's all going to be fine. Whew. But it's, like, great in that way that, like, Truly delicious, like classic romances yes. are great. The setup is perfect. You know exactly what the problem is, and you're just along for this like delicious, happy, joyful. I mean, it's not always happy, but like it gives you a lot of joy kind of ride. Oh, I love it. Mm. Okay. Lenora Bell. Lenora Bell. All right. I am going to talk about Mistakes Were Made by Meryl Wilsner. And this, the last two books I have to talk about are definitely in the, like, books that surprised me category, right? Um, and by which I mean, well, in this case, by which I mean, I, based on the premise, I was like, I'm not sure this book is for me. Because what it is, is um, Cassie is a college senior, but she has friends that are like it's a small school, and she has friends that are kind of all through the um, the college. So she has a friend that's like actually a freshman, and you know it's like parents' weekend. But Cassie's like, like a loner. She basically you know has like a deadbeat mom and has like a friend at whose family sort of taken her in. But like Cassie's really alone in the world, and so she's got a lot of complicated feelings about everything going on. At parents weekend and to avoid, you know, kind of campus, she sidles out to a local bar and picks up this beautiful older woman named Erin. And the next morning when her friend is like, let's go to have, you know, my mom's here for parents weekend and I can't stand her and she drives me crazy. So like, let's come with me to breakfast because then you can like even it out. I'm your mom now. I'm your mom now. Yes. And you know what, Sarah? Like, I think part of it is because, look, Mer if you've read um, Meryl's first book, like, they don't really play around with, like, sort of consent. Like, you know, this is gonna not going to be a book that's just, like, kink. This is, like, a serious romance about someone sleeping with their best friend's mom. And I was like, I'm not sure I can do it, right? My child is in college. Too real. But... The thing that is spectacular about, and, you know, Aaron, their college, I think, is, like, in Massachusetts, and Aaron lives in New Hampshire. So, you know, it's, like, not, like, quite the same town. There's, like, a lot of questions already built into the system about how it's going to work. Now, I was lucky enough to interview Meryl when they were in town um, a couple weeks ago, like, I think probably in October, about the book. And one of the things that they said that I thought was really interesting about the book is, and I think this is ultimately why it worked for me, is because they meet as equals, 
right? The only, it's an age gap, but this is not something where Aaron is like getting a charge out of sleeping with her daughter's best friend or whatever, right? Because they meet as equals and they have sex that first night out in a car in the parking lot, they are always equals. And so then it's just really a matter of figuring out like, well, how is this going to work? And then how do we reveal our secret? Right. And so you really find yourself thinking like, well, how are they going to, you know, Meryl, how are you going to get these two on together on page? It can't be that all of a sudden Aaron's visiting the college every weekend. Her daughter doesn't want to see her. Well, it turns out that um, she agrees to go home with her best friend for the winter holidays. And it is so hot and it's so sexy, but it's also so tender, right? Where you have Aaron coming out of a divorce, Cassie really facing like the prospect of adulthood on her own. And like these two really make something that is so believable and so real. And I was just, I read it with a smile on my face and also super hot. I'm not trying to say you can't smile when it's hot, but it's both of those things. But mostly, like I said, I I think based on the premise, I thought, I'm not going to, I'm not sure this is going to work for me. And it is so well done. It's so much fun to read. It's a real joy. Nice. Well, um, I also have a kind of tricky relationship for my last pick. Last year, we put Diana Quincy's uh, her night with the Duke on the list. Was it two years ago? Was it two years ago? I don't know. I'm doing it again. I'm putting <laughs> I'm putting a Diana Quincy book on the on the list again because it was so good. Here's my other Brandon. The first one's a Brandon. This one's a Brandon. But he's actually an Alex because <laughs> listen, Marquis disguised as a footman. I love it so much. I mean, anybody disguised as like a servant in a historical. I'm just for it. <laughs> this is the best. So um, our heroine, Rose, is a lady map maker. And I would also say, the one thing that I didn't say at the beginning of this, the overarching umbrella that I have for all these books that I did not know until I read them all was like, these are all career-minded women, mm-hmm. right? There's the rum distiller and the musician who I didn't mention that in Lenora's book, the heroine um, has submitted... Uh, a beautiful sonata to uh, the Royal College of Music under a pseudonym, a male pseudonym and Ooh. won an award, but then she can't go get it because, oops, right. she's not a man. Um, anyway, uh, so Diana, this heroine is a map maker and she is a skilled map maker. And um, at some point over this time, she is, but, there's a problem because she is not, in fact, a public map maker. Mm. She is married to a map maker. Oh. Who uh, takes all of her work and passes it off as his own. Of course he does. And so uh, our hero, uh, Alex, Marquis of Brandon, turns up and um, he is very upset because this particular map maker something has gone wrong with the map of his estate and the neighboring estates. And part of his land has been drawn to his neighbor and not okay. to him. And so he, for romance reasons, can't just like accuse this map maker sure. of shenanigans. Instead, he has to <laughs> pretend to be a footman and disguise himself and like get to the bottom of like this map making problem, which is yes. fine. Look, it doesn't matter. 
<laughs> Lots of drama in the man-making world. I love I mean, it. It's, it's fine. Great. So um, as they're sort of moving through this this world, right? There, there is, so he disguised himself as Alex, who is the map, who is the footman. And he and the heroine like start to get close because he's fascinated by her. She's, she is beautiful. She is clearly brilliant. He's pretty quickly clocks that she is in fact the map maker and that something is like up with this marriage that they have that she and her husband have. Um, Rose for her, for her part is, um, very unhappy in her marriage. Obviously it's a romance novel, so she can't be happy in her marriage. She's very unhappy in her marriage. Um, her, her husband who at the beginning of their relationship, like came to her bed now and then, like Mm. hasn't touched her in years. He clearly doesn't like her and he sort of is off in a way like doing things and she doesn't really know what, what he's up to. So she's really lonely and she really, really wanted to have children. Like, and Mm. it's very clear that, and her husband is basically like, I don't want to have children. Like, I don't want anything to do with children because they're just, I like a, I like a, a tidy life. And so she's like desperately unhappy, but really the, like making maps is like her only joy. And then like hanging out with this footman who like thinks of her and talks to her and has similarities to her because his mother, um, was her grandfather was from Lebanon and his mother was from Palestine. And so like, there is a sort of sense from both of them that like, Mm -hmm. um, like they have this Arab, connection and like he speaks a language that she hasn't heard since she was a child like it's really lovely like the connections there so but the whole time as a reader you're like all right well we have a problem why can't right. they be together right now? Well, first of all, she's married. Like, really, <laughs> that's a big problem. There's nothing else, right? <laughs> that's the that's the, the ultimate. What's right. fascinating is that Diana doesn't let that be the only problem. Like it could mm. have been the problem for the whole time, but by about halfway through, that sorts itself out in a really fascinating way that I don't want to Sure. Spoil. No spoilers. Um, Diana also writes mysteries. And I think, I've said this before, I think mm. Diana's mystery writing serves her romance writing so well because the twisty, turny bits in yeah. these historicals really keep readers guessing. Like, you would think the reason why they can't be together right now is because of the marriage. But when that all sort of sorts itself out, there's still this looming problem, which is he's a fucking Marquis and he's been (laughs) lying the whole time. Right. And she doesn't trust him. She doesn't trust him on multiple levels. There's also like this map making thing that's happening. And she doesn't trust him on that level either. And it really, Diana never, ever takes the easy road with her characters. They are always so nuanced. Their love for each other is so earned always. And their happiness really comes from truly understanding each other and the world that, the way that they view the world. And it's really beautiful. She writes in stunningly beautiful romance novel. And I think that the other thing that I think she does, and I think Lenora does really beautifully here. And actually, interestingly, kind of all the books that I've talked about mm-hmm. are is there's this real class difference. I think I really gravitated this yeah. year to books that have a real 
Because that's so real. Underscore kind of the difference between us in every, in all ways, right? So, um, you know, where preferential treatment does the kind of like, I'm going to top you for your money. What's (laughs) happening here is this very real sense of, and in obviously British set historicals, class is so important that when you structure a, a book with like someone with immense money and power, sort of caping as, yeah. you know, sure. a, a footman. There's something kind of gross about that. And and Diana doesn't shy away from it, and neither does the heroine, and he has to, he has to reckon himself. Yeah. That's, you know, I have a copy of it. I'm just moving right up my list, right up the, right up the, the rankings there. So my last one is... Um, a new-to-me author, uh, and pretty new to romance. I think this is only her second novel. It's Return to Cherry Blossom Way by Jeannie Chin. Oh, yay. And I mentioned this book really briefly, but I think I knew the minute I read it that not only was this going to, like, I've been sort of saving this book for last because I feel, like, such hope about romance when I think about this book. Mm -hmm. Right? So, um... This, and uh, and I want to, like, shout out, like, I don't really pay a whole lot of attention to TikTok, but I think that Jeannie was on the, like, forever TikTok talking about this book, and it came out on August 23rd, which was the day your book came out. It was just, like, a buzzsaw. It was, like, yeah, 800 was romances. Yeah, many books out right? that day. And yeah. I was really, like, I want to try and read some of these ones that maybe got, like, lost in the shuffle a little bit yes. because... I bet there's great, of course, right, great books out there. So anyway, this is the second book in a series, and I went back to read the beginning, and it made me even respect this book more. And so what happens is May Wu is our main character. She lives in New York. She's a travel writer. She's been all over the world. And a big part of her reason for doing that is because she was desperate to escape her small North Carolina town. Um And what happens is, though, is that it is very clear that something's going on at home. She has two sisters and her mother and her stepfather, and um, they have kind of recently come become famous because of events in the first book, which is um, her older sister runs, like, their family's inn and um, has, you know, there's, like, has sort of you know, reinvented, like, the street festival and is trying to bring people back to town because, you know, they got passed by when a new road was built. And, you know, this is, like, a real concern of mine is, like, these small-town romances, like, how does it work, really? And in book number one, you really get this sense of it, right? But here in book number two, you have May, who is like, I will... I will do anything I can to avoid it, even knowing my mom is sick, even knowing uh, as a travel writer I could make my sister's like, you know, sort of festival, a really big deal. She just, like, can't bring herself to do it. And when she finally does go home, she is so full of, like, resentment about the things that happened to her in high school. She was really bullied for being Asian American by a particularly terrible mean girl. She had a really sweet boyfriend, though, Han Wang, who is still in town, and he is running his parents' now Chinese restaurant. And it is this thing where there's so many layers to this book, right? So you're kind of expecting, like, a little bit of, like, a cookie cutter. Like, okay, she has two sisters, and they all, you know, grew up, you know, moved to this town with her mother when she marries this new white man. And, like, you know, like, how's that going to go for them? But they all had such different experiences. And, you know, you kind of expect 
you know, Han to just be like a nice guy, but he's had his dreams of getting out too and like couldn't manage to do it and now is like really made peace with running the restaurant and and has convinced himself he's really happy. And all of the like layers and the chipping away at what happened both in the town and the family is really like the concern of the book. As it's also clear that May and Han are supposed to be together. But how? She has said, I will never come back. And he has said, I cannot leave my family. And all it, it is, uh, it, this book made me feel like I felt when I read Contemporary Romance 20 years ago. Right? That same feeling. I mean, that's awesome. Right? That, yeah. that is the greatest, that should be the blurb on the book. Like, <laughs> right? It's it is so just hard so, right now to yes. know what you're getting. Yes. That, right. I mean, it yeah. sounds awesome. And it's not that there aren't like hard feelings and conflict. Of course there is. But, and this is, I think the thing, like, right. The reason this book kind of surprised me is I am on record for not loving a small town romance where big city girl goes back home. Right. So I was sort of primed to not really like it, but instead it really deals with all of that head on. It's not just a set piece. It's the plot. And I think that's what makes it so successful. It is, it's hot, it's sexy, the family stuff. I mean, it is just a perfect romance novel. I loved it. And I cannot wait to read book number three. Yay. We did it, Jen. We did it. We did it. So um, that, by my count, is eight traditionally published romance novels, two self-published romance novels or independently published romance novels. Um, as we said at the beginning of the episode, you can find all these books. We will put everything in show notes. You will, there will be buy links in show notes. But if you, like us, like to read a lot of romance novels, like to give romance novels as gifts that you know are great and you want people to read and love, um, or if you just want somebody to love you and give you a gift that you will love, um, or give yourself one, you can reach out to Old Town Books. Um, there will be links in show notes. And buy the entire box as the Faded Makes Best of the Year box. It will be delivered in time for the holidays. And it comes with a Magnificent Firebird sticker and a letter from me and Jen. Read great romances. And you know what? If you have one or two of them, you can give them to your friends, stick them in a little free library. Like, I just think it's like a really fun opportunity to there read are these books. At least three mass markets on this list, which means they're perfect stocking stuffers for the romance lover in your life. Um, so Santa, if you're listening, it's good for it's good for that. And um, I'm Sarah McLean. I'm here with my friend Jen Prokop. We are Faded Mates. And you can find us on Twitter at Faded Mates, on Instagram at Faded Mates Pod, on Tumblr <laughs> at faded-mates.tumblr.com, and always at fadedmates.net. We are in your ear holes every Wednesday. You can find us on your favorite podcatching app. And uh, we'd love it if you'd like and subscribe. And if you have some time, leave us a review. Thanks so much this week to Nancy Norcott, author of Mage Sentinel, and Charlotte O'Shea, author of Forever in a Moment, for sponsoring the episode. As always, the best way for you to support us is to support our sponsors. So hopefully you'll find some good books this week. 
Also, if you're a writer or a business and you'd like to talk to us about ads, you absolutely can. We are booking ads into 2023 now. You can reach us at advertise at fadedmates.net. And I think that's all she wrote. Stay tuned for a little taste of Charlotte O'Shea's Forever in a Moment. Forever in a Moment, Dearborn Inn. Written by Charlotte O'Shea. Narrated by Stephanie Montalvo. Dedication. I believe in destiny. I believe we drive the car, but fate takes us on uncharted roads. I believe in the hope and fresh start of every new year. Chapter 1. Honeymoon for One. How did I, Samantha Martino, end up driving a rental car in a snowstorm on my way to a tiny town in Vermont on a honeymoon for one? I'll tell you, but I'm warning you now. Keep your comments to yourself until the end. It's not pretty. That Friday started out like any other day, and by any other day, I mean every other day. You can set your watch by my schedule. No, actually, you could run NASA by my schedule. It's that frickin' predictable. 5 a.m. alarm, set so I can snooze till 5.15. Work out, shower, protein shake. Select another just-this-side-of-state outfit from a closet full of, yes, I'm a curvy woman, and yes, you must take me seriously, wardrobe choices. Since I spend the entire day stuck in my tiny office... In theory, I could wear Daisy Dukes and a cut-off tee, but parental decree dictates otherwise. Ten hours a day, every day, I'm poring over the federal, state, and city tax code, and rulings along with writing the occasional memorandum of law. I don't meet with clients. I am a junior lawyer in a tax firm. Even my desktop finds me so boring it yawns and shuts down on a regular basis. I leave the charming shoebox I call my apartment to walk one and a half miles to the office. Uber if it's raining because my hair. It's long, thick, and wavy, and no amount of clever angle cuts or fancy YouTube tutorials can prevent it from blowing up into cartoon hair at the slightest hint of precipitation. 8 a.m., I greet Dad, sometimes Mom at the door of their adjoining Lower Park Avenue offices. We're always the first ones there. Naomi and Jeremy, who share our receptionist and assistant duties, show up closer to 10 a.m. Then I sink into regs, opinions, and precedent. Like it's my job. (laughs) Because it is. I don't pick up my head till my yogurt and apple lunch at exactly 12 noon, unless it's to answer a query one of my parents pose about a client. My mom, Lena LaRusso DiMartino, is an accountant, and my dad, Sam Sr., is a lawyer. Dad and I are DiMartino LLP. In the adjoining office space is LaRusso Accountants. The accountants are my mom and my fiancé, Ben Talisi. I mean, ex-fiancé. You'll excuse me because habits are tough to break, especially, I'm realizing, for me. For almost three years, I've been calling Ben my fiancé. I'm such a creature of habit. You can tell what day it is by the color of my shoes. 
Fridays are red, which I hope is self-explanatory. But back to that Friday. It wasn't just any Friday. Yet, like every Friday since even before we got engaged, Ben and I planned to have dinner together. At six o'clock, if it was a working dinner, with takeout in our shared conference room, or 6.30 if we went out to our usual place, Park Avenue Burger, home of what I called the Boring Burger, where the salads were unfashionably tiny and the desserts predictably inedible. However, it wasn't just any Friday for a number of reasons. First, it was two weeks before our wedding. Second, it was two weeks before Christmas. Third, I had some news to give Ben. And fourth... It turns out Ben had some news to give me. Ben suggested, no, he insisted we go to Park Avenue Burger, and in retrospect it made sense. We were such a sensible couple. If he was going to break up with me two weeks before our wedding, he was going to do it in a public place, where the legendary DiMartino temper, seldom seen but feared all the more because of its elusive quality, could not be unleashed. Or so he thought. Oh, Sam, you didn't. There's shock and awe in Tracy's voice. And I don't mind saying that if I have to tell my girlfriends a sad and sorry tale of being dumped two weeks before my wedding, I'm glad there are some moments I can look back on with a smile. Make that a smirk. I did. I guess those tone-up workouts really jacked my arms because I lifted that table like it was an empty pizza box. And then what happened? That's Beth. She's a New York City school teacher. Idealistic and tough as nails. He brushed himself off, but I'm guessing he took a hefty burger and fry scent home with him to the lovely Crystal, along with my ring. You You gave gave the the ring ring back? Tracy and Beth both shrieked at the same time. Other diners in the Turtle Bay Tavern we chose as our impromptu girls' night out spot barely look in our direction, but Tracy and Beth are apparently appalled. Tracy is an event planner and always has the Emily Post etiquette angle on everything. Beth has been my righteous protector ever since our middle school's Mean Girl Squad made fun of the embarrassing, too early, beginnings of my centerfold figure. Seriously? Why would I want it? Because it's almost two carats! They're both flabbergasted. No, I spent all of last night wondering how it all went south, and I decided I was much as fault as he is. He can keep the ring. Give it to Crystal. I don't care. I don't need the reminder of a lesson learned. You're not the one who cheated. No, no, I don't mean it like that. And he didn't cheat right away. When Crystal came back to New York, he says they were just meeting up. You know, two college friends, blah, blah, blah. Two college friends who were inseparable all through college. Tracy sips the last drop of her margarita before pursing her lips in disapproval. Yeah, and after eight years apart, he still had feelings for her. My voice droops against my will into a half whine. He should have told you right away. That's Beth. I nod and search for an upbeat tone in the depths of my wine glass. I raise my head and flip my work-appropriate ponytail back over my shoulder. He should have. He shouldn't have waited, and it kills me because I know why he did. My mom planned to give him a stake in the accounting firm when we married. 
He waited because he had to calculate whether marrying me and getting equity in the firm was worth giving up Crystal. And yeah, he's going to take her, not me. Not even half interest in Mom's firm could tempt him to stay. It sounds like you're defending him. Tracy motions to the server for another round, and my wine glass is quickly refilled with a buttery winter chardonnay. Sure you don't want something stronger? That's Beth, who chugs another mouthful of her beer every time I say Ben or Crystal's name. No, I say decisively. Old habits again. I can't remember the last time I had anything more alcoholically caloric than white wine. I owe my curves to pasta and cheese, although I usually limit myself to one glass, two at the most, and only on a Friday or girls' night out, because it isn't every day a woman gets dumped two weeks before her wedding. I'm not defending him. I cared for him, and he hurt me. Still, the shock of this got me thinking. What if we both had a lucky escape from each other? We were in a rut. And if he hadn't met Crystal again, if we married, would we have been happy? Was he marrying me for a piece of the accounting firm? Was I marrying him because he was there? Reasonably attractive, and I'm 30 years old. I'm 30 freaking years old, and I haven't had a date since college. In law school, it was study, study, study. Then celebrate with post-exam boozy brunches. Then I segued right into my dad's firm. You know what's really horrible? I continue in a groaning ramble. Ben isn't my soulmate. Not even close. And I went along with all of it. I take another restorative sip of wine. I kept my head down and worked and accepted all the things I thought I should want. What if the guy I was meant to meet, what if my soulmate walked past me on the street one day? Pick any day, any street, in any year. And you know what? It doesn't matter. Because I wouldn't have seen him. I would never have seen him because I'm always so busy. With my head down, sticking to my damn schedule. Slightly embarrassed by my drunken outburst, I looked down at my Saturday shoes. Basic black stilettos I switch out for boots when the weather is inclement. Okay, I get what you're saying but it's so damn gutless of him to wait until now. Tracy is so agitated on my behalf, she's almost levitating, her southern voice pitching higher in its indignation. And if that wasn't a dead giveaway, she said damned. And you know, she never curses. Don't I know it. I have a gorgeous dress I'll never wear that cost me a month's salary. Then there's the honeymoon week in some adorably remote spot in Vermont to cancel. And I'm exhausted from pushing to finish all my year-end work. Not to mention, I haven't even told my parents yet. There's a wedding luncheon at the boathouse. We have relatives coming in from New Jersey. I say the last sentence on a whale before I slump back in my seat. Without speaking, Tracy motions us to stand, and we weave our way over to the bar. Our paninis are finished, and all we want to do now is snark on Ben and drink. First things first, Tracy says. That's Tracy's event planner voice. She drums her fingertips on the surface of the glossy mahogany bar. Ben paid for the honeymoon, didn't he? He did, I nod. 
So one problem solved, you're going on that honeymoon. I'm hardly in the, Beth raises her hand in front of me, teacher style, and I shut up. Tracy continues, you said yourself you've cleared your desk through the new year. You said you're exhausted. If I know you, you have a closet full of cute ski clothes you were ready to take on this trip. Not a trip. It was our... I stumble over the word because this wasn't just a trip. And I'm not part of an hour anymore. And damn, I want to scream because I do have a closet full of useless, cute ski clothes I'll never wear now because I don't even know how to ski. Finally, you said you and Ben were in a rut. Well, Sam, I hate to say it like this, but Ben is out of his rut and you're still stuck. Forget about your schedule. Forget about work. Forget about the reason for this trip and just go. At my nod, the bartender refills each of our particular poisons. When I'm still silent and sipping my wine, Tracy pipes up again. Damn, girl, Ben paid for it, and you will go if I have to kidnap you to get you there. That gets a choke chuckle from me. <laughs> Tracy, you pipsqueak, you couldn't kidnap a fly, much less me. I am so toned right now, I could bench press you. Still, she's right. I could use the break. I could use being around people I don't know, who don't know me, or the mess of my life right now. I could use a little R&R in a remote spot. Ben is out of his rut all right, and rutting his one true love. I pressed my trembling lips together because I cried all last night, and I'm not going to let myself start again. I jerk my chin up and down. I'm going to go. Chapter 2. Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas Christmas is my favorite holiday. Even though as a family, we've always had to be ruthlessly efficient to celebrate with year-end legal and tax deadlines, taking some of the spontaneity out of the season. Those deadlines equal our bread and butter, and it has never been different in my memory. Christmas is a big deal in my family, so we squeeze in time to bake and prep on several weekends before we cook the traditional Italian seven fishes dinner on Christmas Eve. Even Dad does his share. The fact that my wedding was planned for Christmas Eve only added to our family's excited anticipation. I wonder if from now on I'll always associate Christmas with the worst moments in my life. I show up Monday evening at their place to help with baking. Mom bakes cookies and gives them to far-flung relatives, and over the years I've learned all of her recipes. Tonight's different. I can't lose myself in flour and a rolling pin. Tonight, I have to tell them about Ben. Telling them my other news will be even tougher. And I wonder again, how is it possible that all this is happening to me? Tracy is right, though. I'm so ready for a break, and I'm glad to have an escape like the Vermont trip to look forward to on Christmas Day. Am I running away from my problems? <sighs> no doubt. When I get to their pre-war apartment, Mom is already out of her business suit. Her body sleek in athleisure wear. In middle school, it became apparent I inherited my abundanza figure from Dad's side. 
Currently, Mom and I look more like cousins than mother and daughter. Mom's dark hair is pulled back in a smooth shinyang in preparation for an evening in the kitchen. Andre Bocelli is mid-Ave Maria aria, and the apartment smells like almond paste and lemon zest. Dad's casual wear is Mom's mirror image, and he's actually tying on an apron around his toned middle when I arrive. My heart sinks, because I'm about to mess up their evening. So I dive right into my prepared speech. When I'm finished telling them about Ben, their mouths are gaping open. I pin a big smile on my face because I have to play this right. I can't show my own pain because Ben isn't only a future son-in-law to them. He's a future partner in the accounting firm. They're going to take this news hard. I even take the liberty of going on LinkedIn and making a list of accountant contacts for them to pursue while I'm gone. Ben will have to be replaced. Dad is shocked into a rare silence before he lets out an, Oh, Sammy baby. And I know the twin feelings of wanting his comfort and hating his pity. Then he starts muttering darkly about teaching Ben a lesson he'll never forget. No, Dad, I say. I just want to forget him. There's sadness overlay with the anger in his dark eyes, and I turn away because I can't take any more sympathy. Mom pulls me in for a tight hug, then smooths stray tendrils of my dark hair off my forehead. She assures me she'll get Naomi to help her inform the guests about the change of plans. Good euphemism, Mom, and that I shouldn't worry about anything. Then she looks straight into my tear-glazed green eyes and asks, So, will Ben continue to work for us, or will he resign? Really, Mom? I sputter. I'm stunned, and I cover the quiver in my voice with righteous indignation. Honestly, I didn't think after all that happened in the last few days, anything had the power to surprise me. But there you go. I know Mom loves me, but she's so damn practical and methodical. He'll resign, I say. I asked him to. I think he got that message when I dumped his dinner in his lap. And I'll tell you something else— I'm still going on the honeymoon we planned to Vermont. Alone. I'll be gone for a week. Christmas Eve dinner the next week is a stilted affair. I accept their effusive compliments on my appearance. My parents seldom see me in anything but boring business suits, and I decided it was time to splash out. I will not be returning any of the clothing I bought in anticipation of my honeymoon. I didn't cancel my makeup session, or my blowout either. I flip my newly styled hair over my shoulder like this is our typical Christmas Eve celebration and not the night that was supposed to be my second as a married woman. I have mercy on them, though. I don't mention the unworn wedding dress, which is already in Tracy's possession. I needed it out of my sight, stat. And she has ideas for consigning it or something. I don't care. Everything in my life is upside down, and I don't care. The next day, sitting in the back of the Uber sedan Ben hired to take us to Vermont, a few things hit me. My life hasn't been upside down for a while. Maybe never. Did I ever doubt I would become a lawyer like Dad? Not really. Unless it was to consider becoming an accountant like Mom. But I didn't quite have her head for numbers. 
I'd been an economics major and added a teaching certificate coming out of college. The ink was barely dry on my diploma before I started studying for the LSATs. Such is the life of an only child. This upside-downness is scary, and it's forcing me to examine for the first time in a long time, maybe ever, the goals I have for myself. Ben's departure from my life is causing me to rethink the rut I'm in, in a major way. Not only did I settle for a man who could live without me just fine, I also slid aimlessly into a career my parents expected me to pursue. I'm 30 years old, and I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. Add to that the news I've kept to myself since a few days before my broken engagement. I may never have children. I barely had time to get my arms around the concept of what my GYN told me before the breakup. In the face of my parents' obvious distress, I didn't have the heart to bring it up to them yet. Now it's one more unexpected issue I need to deal with. I wipe at the tears seeping out of the corners of my eyes, then check to see whether the driver has figured out he's ferrying a semi-depressed, jilted woman to her honeymoon for one. The last thing the driver's observing is my state of mind. His heavy sighs are turning into muffled curses, and I straighten up from my self-absorbed slouch to look out the window of the town car. To say it's snowing pretty heavily would be like saying the Yankees have a pretty good postseason record. Where are we? I can barely make out the numbers on the green exit signs along the Taconic Parkway. Er, I'm looking for the signs for Route 7, but I don't know. It's... His nose is practically touching the windshield. Yeah, hard to see. I take a closer look at the driver's death grip on the steering wheel and make a decision. Listen, I'm going to look up an exit that takes us to a rental place. I'll settle up with you and you can go back. I'll finish my trip on my own. The relief in his voice is palpable. You sure? Thank you. Thanks very much. I'm from the South originally. I'm not used to this kind of weather. It takes quite a while and intensive online searching to locate a rental place that's open on Christmas Day, but they don't call me Stubborn Sam for nothing. Once I get behind the wheel of the SUV, I decide Stupid Sam would be a better descriptor for this particular occasion. I also wonder if I should have rented a Hummer instead. So, now you're all caught up on the basics of my here and now. The bigger question would be the why. At the moment, I'm too focused on keeping this truck on the right road. Damn, keeping it on the road at all. And I am struggling so hard to see through the windshield that I don't have time to think about silly things like being left practically at the altar. Not to go all survivor on you, but I'm just trying to stay in one piece till I get to the middle of Nowheresville, Vermont. I have to pull over at increasingly frequent intervals and actually get out of the SUV to clear the windshield manually. That's how fast and hard it's snowing. It's that sticky kind of snow that frames a window into a winter wonderland scene when you're sitting warm and cozy on the other side of it in your home. On a windshield, it's a whole other story. This snow is blizzard snow as sticky as freshly cooked white rice lathered thick on my windshield. When I get back to civilization, I bet I'll find out this was the Christmas storm of the century, with snow blanketing the entire East Coast. 
and me too wrapped up in my own pathetic misery to pay attention to something as basic as a weather report. So, unlike structured Sam, I almost laugh. The rest of the world has obviously heard about the storm of the century because there's not a soul on the road except me. There hasn't been another car for hours. Finding a car rental place and getting that organized was a nearly impossible and lengthy process, but I took the opportunity to grab a coffee, a crawler, and a bathroom break. I also called the inn to let them know I'm still going to make it there this evening, though my five to six hour trip is now in its tenth hour. But a quick check of the GPS tells me I'm on course. It's anybody's guess when I'll actually arrive, but when I get off the secondary road, I should be on Maple Run Avenue and snowball throwing distance from the Dearborn Inn. Half an hour and several wrong turns later, I believe I've made it back to the correct route, but as my vehicle sputters to a halt, my loud curse echoes into the silence of the sumptuous SUV interior. I'm out of gas. Chapter 3. Frozen. The Reality Show. The stream of curses I shout in Italian and English at the windshield would make my girlfriends and my Italian ancestors proud, and my parents fear for my sanity. The exertion of yelling and pounding the steering wheel warms me up some, but when I've exhausted my supply of expletives, I'm still out of gas on a road that may or may not be the correct one to the Dearborn Inn. I review my options. Logically. It's already starting to get cold in here without the warmth of the car's heater. I can see my breaths puff out as I try to remember everything. Or anything. I was taught to do if I ran out of gas. I can almost hear my parents' voices. Fill up when your tank's only half empty. Wise advice. Useless right now. Even though I should have remembered SUVs eat gas like nobody's business. I can call my friends. Or my parents. But there's nothing they can do besides call the local rescue squad. And then worry about the mess I'm in. I'll call the local rescue squad myself. But first, I'll be sure of exactly where I am. I can't fire up the GPS now with no gas, but I can check my phone. Thank you, God, yes! I'm on Maple Run Avenue, about two miles from the Dearborn Inn. I heave in a grateful breath and start to dial 911. Oh, for the love of Christmas, my phone's battery just quit. No! Whether from the freezing cold, or the fact that like the gas gauge, I haven't given the care and feeding of my device a thought since I started driving the SUV. The face on my phone is now as blank as Ben's when I asked him if he ever really loved me. More cursing makes me feel marginally better, but also fogs up the windows. My options are painfully obvious. Stay in the car and wait for help, or start walking. If I stay in the car, I may freeze. No, I'll certainly freeze. It's Christmas night after 10 p.m. No doubt most people are in post-Christmas celebration mode. Feet propped, warm drink in hand, and if they're lucky, in front of a fire. The rest are asleep. If an emergency crew comes along to clean the road, I will be seen. I check the road, but it's impossible to determine when the crew came by last. The driving portion of the road is packed snow, 
The sides of the road are piled several feet high with snow the plows push there. How long will it be before the next time a snowplow comes down this road? I'm on the main road into town, so maybe soon, but it's equally possible the plows are busy in the outlying areas near the mountains. Maybe the town issued a warning, and all the citizens of Willow Springs, sensible country people as they must be, heeded those warnings and are sitting tight, riding out the storm. After another round of cursing, I come to a decision. It was never my nature to wait till something happens, and to the extent I ever wait, I always regret it. I'm cold, and I'm already wearing all the outerwear I have. I'll warm up if I walk briskly. I walk to work every day, and at most the inn is two miles away. You've got this, Sam, I murmur. I'm not the type of person who talks to herself. In New York City, that kind of behavior is actually not so unusual, but nevertheless frowned upon in professional circles of every kind. I pull my fleece-lined ski hat lower over my ears and wind my scarf, a beautiful Italian wool my mother gave me several years ago, around me till it covers my chest and chin. Then I zip my ski jacket up to my neck. My gloves are on, and I decide to check the trunk in case there's a blanket or something else useful inside. Score! One blanket and two flares. The blanket is the silver, high-tech body heat-preserving kind people wear after marathons, and it will do fine as a cape. I pull it over my shoulders before I position the triangular flares in front and in back of the vehicle. I debate how much damage it might do to the SUV's interior cables and wires if I open the hood, but then I do it. The mammoth white vehicle is already covered in snow, but maybe this way, whoever drives by next will see it before they crash into it. It's still windy, and I'm not sure, but I think that means the storm is still a ways from over. Tiny pinpricks of icy flakes pelt me sideways. At such a fast pace, they steal my breath, and I'm forced to walk with my head down to avoid the gusts. Head down means it's a challenge to walk a straight line, as the wind pushes me towards the snowdrifts at the side of the road every few steps. My boots, which are more prisky than hiking style, are doing a valiant job keeping me warm, but stepping into snowdrifts every couple of feet has pushed snow down past the shearling lining into my socks. I start to sing. I guess I'm one of those people after all. I decide if the last words I utter on this earth are Christmas carols, then so be it. I refuse to allow Ben to make me hate a holiday I have adored since I was a toddler. Stop it, Sam, I mutter. Don't be morbid. I lose track of time. Has it been minutes, or am I approaching the half-hour mark? I should be a grown-up and wear a watch, but my phone usually suffices. The lights from the inn should be in view any moment. That sight will surely give me the energy to power my way to the finish line, like I do when I see the final mile notice pop up on the treadmill. But I don't see the lights yet, so I keep singing. I almost don't hear the sound over my piercing rendition of Over the River and Through the Woods to Grandmother's House We Go, which is more Thanksgiving song than Christmas Carol. But I've already run through all my usual repertoire. It's a truck, not a tricked-up SUV like I was driving, but a humongous Ford pickup. It passes me, though, and I can't believe I drowned out the sound of its approach with my singing. 
I turn, raise my arms and wave them frantically, shouting, Stop! Help! Come back! Like a doomed character in a thriller. The truck was going slow, and now it stopped. As I watch, the driver executes a perfect three-point turn, which I admire, since I have first-hand knowledge of the slippery consistency of the snow under tires and my boots. I'm trembling now, and I pull the silver thermal blanket closed over my chest again. The slippery blanket thing won't stay knotted, and I realize for the first time the value of those Scottish kilt pins I thought only had decorative appeal. The truck rumbles to a halt beside me, and the window, which was cracked an inch, rolls down all the way. For a long moment, we both stare at each other. He has the most beautiful face I've ever seen on a man. Scratch that. On anybody. And that's not because he's almost certainly rescued me from premature death. His face has the perfect proportions of a Grecian sculpture. His eyes are dark, or they seem to be in the shadow of the glare of the dome light obscuring my vision. Chiseled lips make a wide mouth over a square, granite-hard chin. One thing is certain. His eyes are annoyed as they narrow in on me, while my gaze lingers on the unruly strands of hair escaping one of those baseball caps you see all the time on Brooklyn hipsters. But the ball cap doesn't look ironic on him. It's grungy, ripped, and looks like it's the only one he owns. As I watch, his ruddy face whitens, and his lips thin into an angry line. All of a sudden I'm nervous, because surely this person knows I need help. He doesn't mean to harm me, does he? I straighten my back to my full five feet five and stick my chin out. The authoritative effect I'm going for is spoiled by the snow, which chooses the same moment to slide off my hat and onto my face. I brush it away, feeling my cheeks heat while his previously annoyed eyes crinkle with silent laughter. When he's finished laughing, I see that the crinkles remain in the corner of his eyes, and they're matching the grooves at the side of his mouth. Neither of us has said a word, and I search for something to say that's not inane. My ready conversational skills. I am a lawyer, after all, and an Italian, so talking is deep in my DNA are nowhere to be found. He speaks first, and hits me with both guns. I don't know what you're doing walking at this hour in a blizzard, but it's a damn good way to get killed. I almost didn't see you. I could have run you over. He spits out the words, and I have to laugh. A big rolling laugh that borders on hysterical. It never occurred to me if someone happened to find me in this road, I'd have to explain the depth of my stupidity before I got a lift. I just hoped I'd be lucky enough to get a ride before I collapsed in the snow. This isn't funny, he says. Listen, buddy, if I wasn't laughing right now, I'd be crying. You're from New York? You see someone stranded on the side of the road and you think to ask where they're from? Do you want to see my driver's license or something? I hitch my chin even higher if possible, but I can't suppress the violent shudder that quakes through me. Stopping my forward motion for the seconds it's taking to talk to this truck driver has caused my blood to freeze and my muscles to scream in protest. I can't stop another shiver, and I pull the silver blanket closed again. That galvanizes him into action. 
he jumps out of the cab to stand at my side. He pulls the cap off his head, then jams it back on. I'm sorry. He shakes his head as if to clear it. I'm sorry. Please, get in and tell me where you're headed. I'll give you a lift. I... For some reason, I want to refuse, and I rapidly weigh my options, as if I have any. If this guy is a murderer, I'm a goner. He's at least 6'2", and built like a modern tank. A broad-shouldered, lean-muscled, slim-hipped, work-boot-wearing tank. I'm so cold, though. I say the only thing I can think of. I have to make him understand I will be missed if I don't show up at the inn. I'm on my way to the Dearborn Inn. I'm expected there, and I called to say I'd be there shortly. They're waiting for me, so... He nods. You're almost there. Hop in. I climb in, and the blast of warmth from the cab's heater is as rewarding as winning a summary judgment motion. I'm still shivering, though, and he fiddles with the heater till all of the vents are pushed in my direction. Would a murderer care if I froze? I decide to give him another chance. He's alone on Christmas night, just like me, so maybe his life isn't all kicks and giggles either. Thank you for the lift. He glances over at me for a second, but keeps his non-flattering, complete attention on the road. But hey, look at me. My white hat is askew with the previously smooth waves of my hair, now unruly wet hanks. The huge silver blanket cape resembles soaking wet tinfoil and is dripping onto the rubber mat on the floor of the cab. I look like the abominable snowman, he chuckles. (laughs) No, you don't. Oh, no. I am delirious. Did I actually say that out loud? You look like... He glances at me for the briefest moment and his eyes warm, the crinkles at the corners of them back in evidence. An angel. His voice is rough, and then he refocuses his attention on the road. Wait, what? I'm definitely delirious. I feel my face flood with heat as he pulls up to the front of a very big, warm-looking, emphasis on the warm, federal-style mansion at the top of the road. He steps from the cab and opens the door for me. All of his previous surliness gone. I trudge up the shallow steps to the small porch, and he sticks close behind me as I go through the front door, like he's not sure if I can make it on my own. I don't know whether I can either, but the warmth I sensed outside is troubled by the heat and cozy atmosphere within. Antique side tables and chairs of all periods back to the 18th century are polished to a satiny sheen. On one large table toward the back wall, a miniature winter village is set up, a charming New England main street lined with storefronts, trees, and homes surrounding a slightly larger establishment that looks remarkably like the Dearborn, with a snowy white cloth under it for a blanket of snow. It has to be almost midnight now, and there are only a couple of low lamps lit on side tables, including one on the registration counter ahead of me. Feeling like Frankenstein, as pins and needles shoot down my legs, I lurch down the main hall toward the registration counter, behind which a young guy waits with a smile. Welcome to the Dearborn Inn, he says, then looks over my shoulder and says, Merry Christmas, Jed. Merry Christmas, Jared. 
I drag off my gloves and sodden hat and push my frozen fingers up to shove the weight of my waterlogged hair out of my eyes. I smile at the clerk. I'm sorry I'm so late, I say. I'm... That's okay, Mrs. Talisi. Your room is waiting for you. The clerk says with a tolerant smile. Weather's a bitch tonight. Good thing Santa's been and gone. I chuckle. Yeah, good thing, I say. I can feel my rescuer's presence. His body heat is heavy behind me, and I turn around to say another thanks. I catch the quick look he gives my bare left hand. Thanks again, I say smiling, refusing to dwell on my bedraggled appearance, my hat and thermal blanket crushed in the crook of my arm. I mean, this man likely saved my life. But all he does is nod before he jams his ball cap back on his head and heads out the front door. As I turn to the desk clerk, I hear the rumble of the pickup starting, then crunching back down the road.